Well, let's see. We're going to explore some of the main themes of The Fifth Way, which is a book that I wrote and the new edition of the new version of has just been released in the last couple of weeks. And I thought it would be a good time just to kind of go through some of those themes because they're foundational. They're foundational to what we teach here at The Effect. They're foundational to uh, my life personally. And I'm hoping they're going to become foundational to all of you as well. I've told this story before, but it just popped into my head as, a, as kind of a perfect analogy. Um, the only time that I've ever drank to excess was when I was living on in the dorm in college in Chicago back in the mid-70s. And uh, it was the first time that I'd experienced real winters, and the winters were just brutal. I can remember 75 below in the windchill, you know, just incredible. It does, you know. <laughs> Steve knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, it doesn't even it doesn't feel cold at that point. It just hurts. It feels almost like it burns. Well, I had this uh, this jacket that I was always teased for because it only went up to my waist. You know, it's supposed to go down to your knees to really keep you warm. But it had one of these hoods that you could flip out, and it had wolf's fur around it, so you could at least get your face out of the blast and everything. We had our favorite little pizza place in town that we could walk to. We had to walk from campus across a park that had a pond in it and then into town, and we could go to uh, Two Brothers from Italy Pizza, but we called it Ma's because we had a, a favorite waitress there that was like our mother to us. You know, We called her Ma, and she loved it. And so we went in there one time in the dead of winter. It was just freezing, and I uh, had a little too much beer with my pizza. And I'm walking back you know, with my hands jammed in my pocket and my hood out. Or, so I'm just seeing this little circle of fur, you know, looking through that and just seeing the steps in front of my feet. And I'm walking, and I get to the park. And I'm following the path, and I'm walking, and I'm walking, and I'm walking. I'm thinking, this is taking forever. Why aren't I getting home, you know, back to the dorm? And for, uh, after a while, I hear someone say, Dave, what are you doing? And I look up. I had been walking around the pond, <laughs> and around, and around the pond. Why am I telling you something like that? Because you know what? It turns out that in life, so many of us are just walking around the pond, we're not really awake in our moments. We're not really aware of what's going on. We're just following the path that has been laid out for us. How has the path been laid out for us? It's been laid out through all the hurts and the traumas, the experiences we have, the things that we were taught that we believed when we were little, and they're just hanging on right now, unexamined, unresearched. It's just all down there as a subconscious material that just keeps us walking around the pond and around the pond. And then we wonder why things never change. We wonder why we don't get different results because we're walking around the pond. There's a way that we have to be able to see something different, to break out and see that there is another path that will take us to a different destination than the one that we are familiar with. How do we do that? Well, we've got to question everything. You gotta question all your assumptions because here's the catch. You don't even know that they're assumptions. You have a worldview. Every single one of you has a worldview. I have a worldview. It's not that we understand it as a worldview, it's just the way that we understand how reality works. This is reality. It's the ground that we walk on, it's the air that we breathe, and we don't question it. It's the perfect prison because we don't think we need to escape from it, but we're walking around the pond. We have to be willing to question, question cherished beliefs, question everything. Take a look and see if what we believe is really true or if it's just what we've chosen to believe 
or what was put on us at a certain place and time and we've just carried on. If we aren't willing to do that, if we aren't willing to start questioning the things that we hold the dearest or the things that are the deepest, then we will never be able to follow Jesus. What do you think he meant when he said crazy things like, unless you're willing to hate your father and mother and sister and brother and children and even your own life, you can't follow me, you're not worthy of me. This is exactly what he's talking about. There was nothing more sacred in ancient Jewish life than the family. Understand the point that Jesus is making, but it's just as relevant to us now. Now, it might be a different thing that he would use to hammer in, to needle in to us, to get us to understand these are the deep, deep, deep things that you need to question. But if we don't question them, then we will just keep walking around the pond and things will not change. Last week when we started, we talked about the gospel according to Lou, which was my friend uh, Lou Sauer, uh, and the last time I saw him, Marion and I visiting him in his in his hospital room, um, his last words to us were, love each other, just love each other, and kid around a little bit. Lou had gotten to the place where his faith, his love, was no longer just decision and hard work. He had gotten to what I call the smile point. He got to the place where it actually became fun. And his kidding around, his his sense of fun, was how we knew we were loved. Not because he decided to love, not because, you know, he showed up and did certain things. It was the sense of funness, the, the sense that when you were in his presence, you were having fun too. And by extension, I believe that's exactly who Jesus was. We have this propensity to see him standing ramrod straight and all formal, speaking that King's James English I was just lauding a second ago, you know. But would Jesus really have been that way? When he told us to be like children, if he wasn't childlike himself, then really did he have any authority to be teaching us how to get into kingdom? We have to see Jesus as having reached his smile point, that he was the guy who was running ahead of his friends and urging them on over his shoulder. And when he played with children down on all fours and rolling around in the dirt and letting them pull his beard, you know, it was that kind of man that we're dealing with, a man truly in love with life. Because what else is the good news? I mean, come on. If the good news doesn't allow you to start having some fun, then what's good about it? Aren't we supposed to be having some fun here? No, the Christian life is all about suffering, and by his stripes we are healed. You know, that's been the the notion of the church for 2,000 years by and large. And there's a reason for that. And when you think about it, the earliest generations of the church were forged in persecution. In fact, for 250 years, the church suffered persecution at the hands, first of the Jewish uh, hierarchy and then the Roman Empire. And then along comes Constantine in the beginning of the 4th century, and he changes everything. He adopts Christianity. He legalizes it within the empire. And then by the end of that century, his next son out, or next second son out in 380, makes not only Christianity the state religion of Rome, but banishes all other pagan practices. took about 80 years for that to happen, but it happened. And so you see Constantine sort of as a fulcrum in church history. Before the church was persecuted, after, guess what happened? The church was the persecutor. Because the church became allied with Roman power, Roman might, Roman authority, Roman empire, Roman army, And now they had the ability to banish everybody else who didn't think the way that they did. And one of Constantine's achievement, I suppose, was to unify 
the church under an orthodox understanding. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody persecuted, but institutionally and from the top, it happened. And if you've read church history, you know that it's bloody. And so we have to reconcile these things. We have to understand. There's a reason that we sit here today with a sense that maybe God is angry. And we talked about that last week. Is God angry? Well, it sounds like he is in the Old Testament, but we talked through some of those issues to see why it's not as cut and dried as we might think. But if God is angry, then he is only as pleased with us as we perform, right? He's angry because we break the law. He's angry because we sin. So he's only pleased if we do good. Again, I ask you, where's the good news? Where is the ability to have fun in that? That's news that I hear all day long. I understand that message. But Jesus was bringing to us something very different. We have to question the assumptions. Question them. Is God really angry? Does he have to be angry? We have evolved to a place where we can deal with people who are sinners, who frustrate us without anger. Do we think that God can't do that as well? Does he need to have a righteous anger to deal with us? These are questions that you need to ask. I'm not, it may sound like I'm trying to persuade you. Uh, let me say, and it, I'm going to make no secret about where my bias is and what I believe. All right? You probably already know that. But it's up to you to decide what you believe. But know this, what you believe, what you deeply believe, not just what you say you believe, is going to have huge consequences on how you act, what your choices are, and most importantly, what your attitudes are toward life. If God is an angry God, if we are only good as our last performance, where do you get to the smile point? And if you can't get to the smile point, Jesus said, you can't enter kingdom. You can't ever get there. Because unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was all about law, you in no way enter the kingdom. So we have to start talking about these things. And this is what I wanted to continue this morning. Because not only do we have questions about God and how God's dynamic works with us as his people, we also have questions about how we are supposed to relate to our world and our choices. You know, how do we conceive that whole thing? Because I'll tell you what happens when God is an angry God, when we are looking at our world this way, the only possible result is fear. And we talked about that last week. A fearful attitude toward life. God is only pleased when we are doing well. I wanted to read you just the opening couple of paragraphs um, from this chapter in the book that we're going through, Warriors and Gardeners. And just to kind of set the tone here, because this idea of fear is so central to what we're trying to talk about and, and questioning these assumptions. The quality of the means we use must match the quality of the ends we seek. I want to say that again. Really hear that. The quality of the means we use must match the quality of the ends we seek. Or better, the quality of the means we use always matches the quality of the ends we produce. Huh? Like breeds like. We reap what we sow. Get out what we put in. We won't get olives from fig trees, and if the ends we seek are the unity and contentment of true spiritual formation, we need to know that we can't work for unity and contentment without first acting unified and contented. Seems basic, right? A young man tells me in low tones he's praying that the Lord comes back soon. Today would be fine with him. 
His finances are so upside down, he doesn't know how he's going to make it to next month. I can almost see his knuckles whiten as he grips the wheel and stares down the rest of his life like the barrel of a gun. How many people do you know like that that are just waiting for the rapture? Come on, Lord, don't tarry. Beam me up, Scotty. There's that idea that life is so bad, I just want the escape clause. I just want to get out of here. You know, Is that kingdom? Is that a life that is perfected in love? Is that what Jesus is talking about? A woman in her 60s confides to me, actually confided to me, that after 40 years of service in the church, she still wonders if she's really going to heaven. Can you imagine? I, I was floored when she came up to me at the church where I was associate pastor and said she wasn't sure. These are anxious people. A student says he's been worried ever since attending a Pentecostal charismatic service, which was so bizarre to him that he couldn't help ridiculing it afterwards. And now he's wondering, did he blaspheme the Holy Spirit, commit the unforgivable sin, he wants to know. know? Another says that he's afraid that in the end times he may take the mark of the beast by mistake and be damned forever. I tell them both that God's not like that, that they couldn't possibly commit an unforgivable sin without knowing exactly what they were doing, which is the only possible definition of unforgivable in the first place. I can see that they remain unconvinced and uneasy. These are frightened people. A pastor tells a study group that he holds his arms outstretched, palms up in times of praise and worship, in order to show God that his hands are clean and acceptable as a child would show his mother that he washed his hands for dinner. But I'm thinking that when my two-year-old son comes up to me with arms outstretched and palms up, he just wants to be picked up and held. These are guilty people. Snapshots of contemporary life in our churches betray our desperation in nearly every frame. Whether anxious, frightened, or guilty, it all comes down to fear, because all these emotions are the manifestations, the acting out of fear. Fear of some sort of loss. We're afraid we're not going to get what we want or what we need. And at the deepest level, we're afraid of simply not being acceptable to others or to God. We lead fearful lives and wonder why we never arrive anywhere else. Walking around the pond. As if fear could ever breed anything that doesn't look like itself. Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name of Jesus, has given us a blinding glimpse of what life looks like when the news is really good and the realization dawns that we can approach each moment from an attitude of abundance rather than need, from the contentment of knowing we are already connected to everything that matters rather than the fear of always wanting. Until the quality of the means by which we live our lives begins to match the quality of the life Yeshua lived, that Lou lived beyond the smile point, We will never make the leap from fear to contentment to playful love. Often within our churches, the problem compounds as beliefs and practice reinforce our fears and sense of unworthiness rather than the unconditional acceptance of the good news. If there is to be any hope of changing unremembered attitudes, we must begin with conscious principles that are pointing in the right direction. Is there a primary metaphor for our spiritual lives? That would be a conscious principle that can guide us in a direction because it's the unremembered attitudes, that stuff down there in the subconscious that keeps us running and walking around the pond. But if we can consciously get a new principle in place, a new metaphor in place, we can move out in a different direction. What's our primary metaphor? 
What's the primary metaphor of the church in terms of the way we deal with our spirituality and we deal with our spiritual walk? Well, for me, it seems that we have adopted the metaphor of the warrior. It's the warrior that animates us the most. Think about it. Think about how we talk. We talk about being soldiers for Christ, don't we? We talk about the full armor of God, putting on the full armor of God. Of course, that's scriptural, and we're going to read that in a second. We talk about taking and occupying the land. The church is fashioned, at least the Roman church was fashioned right after the Roman military and the Roman empire, that hierarchy. And many of our churches still have that with the senior pastor model and the pyramid shape underneath it. So we have this paramilitary fashion. Salvation Army took that to an art form now, didn't they? You know? You have this imperial mindset. We need to go out and conquer. We need to penetrate the land and take it. The whole missionary uh, period of the church, which still goes on, but it was coercive. You know, in the colonial period, it was indistinguishable from the colonization, the political colonization, as the missionaries went out. And so we have this, this mindset. We have the concept of spiritual warfare. Where, the, where everything is a battle and the enemy is attacking. And in fact, sometimes we feel that the more the enemy attacks and when we feel the attack, that must mean the better we're doing because the enemy is taking notice of our accomplishments on the battlefield. And so we have all of this idea. There was another little uh, passage that I wanted to read you. This, to me, was really instructive. Um, a documentary film recently released to theaters nationwide follows children attending a Christian summer camp formed around a military model. Listen to the language of the produce, that the producers use on their website to describe this Christian group. Quote, A growing number of evangelical Christians believe there is a revival underway in America that requires Christian youth to assume leadership roles in advocating the cause of their religious movement. This movie follows a group of young children to a summer camp where kids are taught to become dedicated Christian soldiers in God's army and are schooled in how to take back America for Christ. The film is a first-ever look into an intense training ground that recruits born-again Christian children to become an active part of America's political future. Now, I'm not saying that anything's wrong with that. I'm saying, but look at the metaphor that we're using. I think by and large, there is a large blanket where we look at life as a, as a war, as a battlefield, and we are soldiers and warriors within that. You know, we talked about where that comes from. The, the church has this long history of being persecuted and thinking that it was pain and suffering in which we came close to Christ. We, we have um, put the martyrs up on a huge pedestal for the sacrifice that they gave. And then since then, the church taking on an imperial form has cemented this idea that it's in pain and suffering and hardship that we get close to Christ. And there is this warrior attitude that we have to go and and do something for Christ and for God, defend and so on and so forth. And so this attitude goes so deep. It goes way beyond what you think that you understand. We need to question those things to see if we can come out to a different sort of conclusion. And so, let's take a look at though, because this is also scriptural. It's not just historical and cultural, it's scriptural. Take a look and you can read along in your uh, bulletins, or I'm sure James will get it up on the screen. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 11. This is Paul, the famous, famous verse, passage. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I think all of us can understand that the armor here is a metaphor for for spirituality, but at the same time, the underlying idea is that there is spiritual warfare going on and that we need to be ready for it. And that's true, isn't it? It sure feels that way. My gosh. And so how do we, what is our primary metaphor? Is that what it is? Remember, Paul was writing to a persecuted church. He was writing in times of persecution. These people had it bad. Not like us. Every day they had to wonder if the church police were going to come and take them away or if they were going to get pulled off or exiled or maybe even stoned or mobbed in the street. These were difficult times. And Paul is coming to them and saying, look, this is what's going on. Every single day, you need to fortify yourself. You need to put these things on. It was necessary at that time. Is that the primary metaphor that we want to take with us? It was necessary then. At times, it's necessary now. But question these. Is it the only metaphor that we can look at in terms of how we're supposed to live our lives? And the answer is no. In fact, Jesus never uses it. Do you know that? Jesus never uses the metaphor of the warrior. He seems to prefer the gardener, the farmer, the agrarian. And we see that. Take a look at Matthew 13, right underneath, beginning at verse 3. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no roots, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. That's Jesus' favorite saying for, wake up, you know, question your assumptions. Pull back the hood and see if you're walking around the pond. You know, this is what he's trying to get you to see. He who has ears, let him hear. Notice, the sower is not in charge of outcomes. What a concept, huh? He throws out the seed. Whatever happens, happens. Now he's there. He's nurturing. He's tending. But only when asked. Jesus never coerces. Jesus is just like a farmer. He prepares a cell. He breaks it up. He fertilizes it. He lovingly plants the seed. He tends it. He waters it. He watches for signs of weather and wind. He's working within the flow of nature and the flow of the rhythms of seasons and all of these things that are going to have an impact on the crop. But just like the farmer, just like the gardener, no amount of grunting is going to change how fast that plant grows or how it grows or what the outcome is of the crop. You have to be patient. You sit alongside and you watch and you do what you do. But it's a very different, very different way of living life. Rather than the warrior who is going out and making things happen, rather than the warrior that is moving against 
the stream, against the flow, against the enemy, constantly in contact, constantly looking over the shoulder for for threats on all sides, living that life that is anxious and frightened and even guilty for the things that have had to have been done. When you take a look at the life of the warrior, when you take a look at the life of the gardener, you see that Jesus is always coming back to this idea of the gardener, being in the right place at the right time when the heavy fruit falls. And once again, it may sound like I'm trying to persuade, (laughs) but take a listen. See if this starts to help you to confront your assumptions and see where you end up. You know where I'm heading with this. But what I'm really trying to do is create some balance. It seems to me that over the 2,000 years of our history as Christians, the pendulum has been pulled so far to the side of the warrior that maybe I'm going to have to overcompensate a little bit here this morning to even get it back towards center, to even break through to see if you think that maybe this has some teeth. Maybe this is something that we can really look at. And why is this important, this metaphor? Because here's the truth. The metaphor that we choose for our lives chooses us. It shapes us. It becomes like a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if, if you see the world this way. You know, have you ever heard the expression, if you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail? Well, if you're a warrior, the whole world looks like a battlefield. And there's nothing that you can do about that. If you see yourself that way, that's the way that you're going to experience life. And we need to figure out if that's healthy. We need to figure out if that's what Jesus really would have us do. But here's the question I suppose you're probably all asking, many of you. Is it really okay for us to be gardeners instead of warriors? And did Jesus really never teach us to fight? Did he really not do that? Because it sure sounds so. I have just three passages that I want to go over with you and see if you can kind of just go with me and see what this looks like. What is Jesus really trying to get across? Because if you look at the first one at Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, sounds sort of warrior-like to me. I don't know about you. Yeah. What's he talking about? First of all, this is one of the difficult sayings of Jesus because he's supposed to be the Prince of Peace. You know, the angel sang peace over him at his birth. He said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. And here he's saying, I'm not coming to bring peace, but a sword. What's going on? See, this is where I love the original language because it comes to our rescue here. Here in the Greek and in the English, we have one word peace for both contexts. But when you get back to Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke, what do you have? You have two different words. When Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, when he says, I leave you my peace, he's talking about shalom. And we've talked about that in here so often. It's the sum total of everything that's good. Connection and health and wealth and prosperity and relationship. That's the peace Jesus is about. When he talks about this peace that he didn't come to bring, the word is shaina, and that means calm or tranquility. Now, I think we know that no matter how spiritual we are, our life is not necessarily going to be tranquil or calm, right? It just doesn't work that way. Jesus didn't promise us a rose garden, something like that. And so he didn't come to bring tranquility and calmness or the absence of conflict. He said literally, not that he came to bring division, but that division will be the result of his message. And that is borne out. In the very next 
passage after this one. He talks about how his message is going to set father against uh, mother and, and husband against wife and children against each other, that the enemies would be the, ele- the elements or the members of the own household, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. And that's what happens. You know what Aristotle said? He had a, he had a great quote. He said, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. How about that? As soon as you take a stand for anything, you're going to create some division. And the the stronger the stand is, the more the division. There is no way around it. Jesus is still the Prince of Peace. And yet look at the division that he caused. You can't stand in the face of pure truth like that and not be moved one side or the other. And if you're not ready for it, then you're going to be other. And there's a division. Jesus was murdered. Jesus was executed for being something, saying something, doing something. So as soon as we do with Jesus, as soon as we take a stand for Jesus, as soon as we declare we're going to follow him, it's already going to part the ways. If you're expecting something else, if you're expecting the rose garden, you're going to be severely disappointed. That's the way it works. Jesus is trying to let us know. But this is not about fighting. The sword, again, is metaphorical here. It's talking about the division. And in fact, Luke's rendition of the same passage doesn't use the word sword. He uses the word division. And so we know that it's metaphorical. But still, sometimes these things are confusing for us. Look at the next one. Luke twenty-two thirty-six, And he said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Well, isn't that even more specific? Now what's he talking about? Take a look at the verse right underneath that, Matthew 10.9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Now I want you to notice how those two are completely parallel. The one Matthew was delivered way much earlier in Jesus' ministry when he was first sending out his disciples, to preach and to teach and to heal as he had done. And this is his admonition to them. Don't worry about it. Don't take money. Don't take a belt. Don't take coats. When you come in, you're going to be accepted by the people that you're serving. And if not, you shake the dust off your feet and you head on out and go to the next. The passage in Luke was delivered right before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. Times has changed is what he's trying to tell them. As you go forth now, after my death, as you go forth in this climate, you know, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have hardships. You're going to need that money belt. You're going to need to be able to pay your way. Because now you're pariah. Now because the division that has been caused has put you on the other side of so much of the rest of, of, of uh, Judea, where are you going to find a safe harbor? He's telling them metaphorically, be ready for the strife. But notice, it's still not about fighting. He's not teaching us to fight, to arm ourselves. He is telling his disciples it's going to be a difficult time. This next one is really wild. Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. What do you make of that one? 
This is something, uh, this has been a passage that has bedeviled the church for 2,000 years. Um, it, it's so interesting that you, you'll find commentary on all over the place and trying to, to figure out what is going on here. We know what the kingdom is. We know who Jesus is. How can it be suffering violence and how can violent men be taking it by force? Just read the Beatitudes. It's exactly the opposite of what they're saying is the character of a person who enters kingdom. So what's going on here? One interpretation that I read that I thought was pretty good was that what is being referred to here is the zealot movement, which started right about the time Jesus was born. There was an uprising about 6 CE, 6 AD, um, in in which uh, Judas the Galilean created an uprising, which was quickly put down. But it was the beginning of the zealot movement, which was a political movement to try to instigate and institute the kingdom, which they understood as a political kingdom an actual kingdom, restoring the throne of David, who unified the kingdom a thousand years before. And so they were the terrorists of their day. They were using violence to try to create insurrection, get the Romans out, destabilize the region so that they could retake it, reestablish a sovereign uh, Israel that would be a light to the nations. And so that's not a bad way of looking at it. But I think there's a deeper way when we go back to the Hebrew which is what I always like to do. And when you go back to the Hebrew and you look at those specific words, you know, suffers violence, violent men, and take it by force, you start to get something else that's going on here. Biadzo is the word in Greek that means suffer violence. And harpazo is the word that means take it by force, which can mean that, but it also can mean in Greek to pursue, to seek, to grasp, or to capture. It has all those meanings. And you have to choose the context which it means. And then the idea of the violent men are the biastai. Translating it just from Greek, there's not too much we can do with that. It's translated as well as it can be. But how do we take those words and translate them back into Hebrew? Because we don't have a Hebrew original. Well, a little bit of forensic detective work you know, it's kind of like CSI on the literary side of things. And when you have enough manuscripts to be able to compare, you can find these words being used in different sections of Scripture. And in this case, the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old and New Testament, that was, uh, I'm sorry, the Old Testament that was done about 2nd century BC, uses all these words in different ways. And when you go back to Micah 2, uh, beginning at verse 12, we find that there is the notion of the one who goes and prepares the way of the Lord. And remember, this is done in in context of John the Baptist, who was the one who was preparing the way of the Lord. And so the connection between him and Micah is particularly strong. And the one who prepared the way of the Lord was called a paratz, which means a breaker. And when that was translated into Greek, it was translated as biastai. So we have this other idea now. The biastai is not a violent man. The biastai is the breaker who breaks forth like, like uh, the shepherd who breaks forth a path for the sheep to be able to, to move, which is the context of that particular verse. You've got breakers, and so biadzo then is the breaking forth itself. And then if you take harpazo, which was translating um, taking by force, instead you can use capture or pursue. If you put all that together, and don't worry if you didn't totally follow me because you know, I, I didn't do it justice, um, but there's not time here today. You can come up with a paraphrase that looks like the one at the bottom of the page. 
Instead of from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. We can legitimately translate from the Hebrew, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is breaking forth and those preparing the way are pursuing and grasping it. Now doesn't that sound a lot more like Jesus and a lot more like kingdom? And it makes perfect sense. And it's not about fighting. It's not about taking something by force. That's not how we get the kingdom. And whether you take the zealot idea or this one doesn't matter. At least you get around the idea that we're supposed to be doing this thing. Jesus taught nonviolence. That's what he taught us. He said, blessed are the peacemakers at Matthew 5, 9. And we have understood that peace is just not the absence of conflict. Peace is this shalom, this greatest amount of connection and unity. But here's the really interesting thing for me in that word, the maker part of peacemaker. The word is lavde in in Aramaic. And guess what? It's an agrarian term. It's a farmer's term. It means someone who is committed to a task, ongoing, every day, showing up over and over again, tilling the soil, nurturing the soil, coming back. That's the kind of peacemaker Jesus is talking about. Not just someone who comes in and breaks up a fight. Someone who labors, bent back, over the soil, patiently working. Not so much for the outcome, but just showing up every day to build peace, to build relationship, to build connection. Right back to the gardener. Jesus said when uh, Peter, impulsively, as he always does, pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, put up your sword, Peter. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And he heals the servant's ear. Put your sword back. When he was in front of Pilate in the Gospel of John, and Pilate is asking him all these questions about who he is and what he's doing, he tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting right now. I could call down legions of angels to protect me, to make sure this doesn't happen. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't take up the mantle. He didn't take the bait when it was being offered. Not by him and not by the zealots. And at Matthew 5, verse 39, he says, do not resist an evil person. And we have such a hard time with that. He says, if that person slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also your left. Now we think that maybe that's a call to pacifism, and certainly the Quakers thought that. They built their whole culture around that, understood and interpreted that way. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying be a pacifist. He's talking about one-on-one micro-relationships here. When someone does evil to you, don't return evil for evil. It's not tit for tat. All that does is escalate and take the relationship into the ditch. If you, when you are insulted, when you are hurt, when you are perpetrated upon, if you can stop, if you can break that cycle, it will not go to the violence. It won't go there. He's talking about nipping things in the bud, being that peacemaker who will suffer some of these things and let it roll off so that the relationship can be forged. Not pacifism, very different. Because Jesus did fight when he had to. What was the cleansing of the temple about, if not, huh? But note, Jesus was doing what he did in that temple, 
not against the people, but against the institution that was keeping his people away from their birthright, from their father. He was engaging in a little civil disobedience, a little violence here to protect and defend and preserve the lives of his people. Yes, we need to do that. Would we be full people? Would would we be moral people? Would we be ethical people? If we couldn't rise to the occasion and protect and defend and preserve where we need to for someone who can't do it for themselves or for ourselves as well. Yes, we need to do that. But we need then to be able to decide, is that my primary way of living life? Am I supposed to always be in defense mode? Am I supposed to always be looking over my shoulder? Or am I a warrior when I need to be and then I move back to my default position, which is the gardener? See, this is what Jesus was able to do. He immediately, after the cleansing of the temple, returned to being a gardener. That was all in the same week in which later he washes the feet of his closest followers and friends. Went right back to that humble position. Went right back to just showing up to all these moments and doing what needed to be done to continue to nurture that plant, to nurture that seed. Not coercing the outcome, but allowing it to really happen. So, are we warriors or gardeners? You have to ask that question. Yeah, you know, of necessity, we're both, at one time or another. But Yeshua is much more gardener than warrior. Always this patient tending, never forcing. And why is this important? Again, remember, why is this important? Because the metaphor shapes us. It fulfills itself. And because the means that we use must match the ends that we seek. If we don't start working for unity and for shalom now, we're never going to get there through fear and coercion. It's not going to work. I wanted to read one last passage to end. What are the ends that we ultimately seek? To forever lead the anxious, frightened, and guilty life of the warrior? To be constantly on guard for the enemy, always ready to strike or be stricken, living in the daily presence of death? Of course not. That was always only means to a different end. But the metaphor we choose shapes us, creates itself in our image. The quality of the means we use must match the quality of the ends we seek because at any given moment in our lives, the quality of our means is all the experience there is. There are no ends. A task has means and ends, but not life. Life is not a task. It's a single, ongoing moment of lived experience that only and ever matches the quality of our means, our metaphor. Maybe then we are reluctant warriors who fight when we must, but always with a wistful eye over our shoulders, longing for the silent fields of home, for the moment we can literally beat our swords back into plowshares and take up the work we love. This is just how it feels to begin walking the fifth way after walking the four ways our entire lives. Like falling into the arms of a loved one after an exhausting and frightening ordeal. The four ways of striving against overwhelming power and insurmountable odds, fighting always uphill, upwind, and upstream with our ancient weapons to yield, manipulate, exit, and destroy are as much a joy and a relief to leave behind 
as a battlefield littered with our dead. To stride out of the smoke, to feel the wind at our backs instead of our faces, to glide downhill and pick up speed, to be content to let the earth turn without pushing, are all the hallmarks of the fifth way as opposed to the first four, of the gardener as opposed to the warrior. For many a weary warrior out there, it's time to come home. Let's pray. Father, help us to discern better, maybe. Help us to be able to know when we're warriors and when we're gardeners. Help us to know what home really is, what our home base is, what we're supposed to live the majority of our lives, what we're supposed to be characterized by, as opposed to what we must do at certain points in our lives. Help us to have the courage to question everything, to feel the disorientation and sometimes the disillusionment of having to let old processes go by. Whatever it takes, we want to be closer to you. Whatever it costs, we want to follow you. So help us to do that and to learn better and better how to do that in each and every moment. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the incredible wisdom and revelation that is there that we can glean, that we can still hear your voice every day and know that you love us the way you do. Thank you for being your, the kind of God that you are, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.